Jesus has it used the Sermon on the Mount to lay out the character of kingdom citizens and the commands for kingdom citizens. Our character and the commands for us to live by. Now regarding our character as kingdom citizens, we have to what? Be poor in spirit. We have to be mournful, gentle, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaking, and persecuted yet joyful. Specifically, Jesus has commanded us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He's commanded us not to be unrighteously angry or hateful. He's commanded us not to lust, not to break our vows, but to love our neighbors and to love our enemies, to pray for our persecutors, to give, to pray, to fast in private, to invest in heavenly treasures, to not worry, and to make righteous, not hypocritical judgments. Now, what we are to be and how we are to behave in light of those things is a very tall order, is it not? A very tall order. Some might say that it is next to impossible to accomplish all that Jesus demands. And sensing that reaction from his own disciples, Jesus provides the solution here in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Namely, persistent prayer. Notably, Jesus will speak to the commands of persistent prayer and then examine the cornerstone of persistent prayer. Previously, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13, Jesus taught us how to pray. He taught us how to pray. Now, before examining what Jesus has to say to us in our text this morning on persistent prayer and the kingdom citizen, we need to review his teaching on how to pray. On how to pray. So if we go back to Matthew 6, 9 to 13, we have this model for prayer. And we see there that there are seven elements that ought to be in our prayers. Seven elements for proper prayer. First, there has to be a relational element. There has to be a relational element. Our Father who is in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. Now the word our Father, it implies that prayer is addressed only to God, the Father. Our Father implies that we come to Him depending upon Him. Our Father implies that we are committed to following His example. Second, prayer must contain a reverential element. Prayer must contain a reverential element. Hallowed be your name. And so when we're praying, we need to acknowledge who God is. We need to acknowledge what God has done. We need to pray that God would make his name known in all the world. We need to pray that God's name and nature will be honored. Third, prayer must contain a submissive element. Prayer must contain a submissive element. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to pray for Christ to return and establish his kingdom on earth. We need to pray that his will would be done. We need to pray for a willingness on our part to do his will. 
Fourth, prayer must contain a dependent element. A dependent element. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. We need to pray for our daily necessities. We need to acknowledge dependency upon God's grace. And let's remember that prayer is the answer to worry regarding our daily needs. Fifth, prayer must contain a penitent element. Prayer must contain a penitent element. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We need to pray for forgiveness of sins. We need to pray for restoration with God our Father. And we need to pray for divine enablement to forgive others who have wronged us. Sixth, prayer must contain a protective element. A protective element. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. We need to pray that God would not allow Satan to tempt us. And if God allows it, then we need to pray that he would rescue us from the temptation. And then seventh, prayer must contain a doxological element. Prayer must contain a doxological element. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We need to pray that God is glorified. We need to pray for, praise God rather for who he is and for what he has done. We need to pray that God is faithful and will answer proper prayer. Now regarding persistent prayer and the kingdom citizen, Jesus sets forth the commands of persistent prayer in Matthew chapter 7, 7 to 8. In Matthew chapter 7, 7 to 8, we have the commands of persistent prayer. Let's read Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 8. He says, Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Again, Jesus sets forth the commands of persistent prayer in Matthew 5, or excuse me, Matthew 7, 7 to 8. Particularly, he issues three commands. Ask, seek, knock. If we are to conform our character to God's kingdom, if we are to obey the commands of his kingdom, then we must pray. But it is not simply enough to pray once. And move on to something else. We must be persistent in that prayer. We must be persistent in that prayer. Now these three commands, ask, seek, and knock, form a triad. A triad. We're very familiar with triads. And if you've studied the book of James and uh, uh, Peter's writings and Jude, they all use triads. There's also a second triad of three promises. It will be given to you, you will find, and it will be open to you. Now when we talk about triads, what are they? Triads are a trio of events, or characters, or descriptions, or commands that follow the rule of three. The rule of three is a common rhetorical strategy that it uses or, or uh, argues to persuade people to make a decision, to, uh, uh, to have a certain point of view, by using three commands, three objects, three examples, and so forth. Triads are used because they're memorable. 
They're memorable. And Jesus employs a triad of commands to invoke us or to enjoin us to persist in prayer because they're easily memorable. And as well, he's doing this to persuade us to be persistent in prayer. Now, also with this triad, he, uh, Jesus employs this triad within the framework of what is called step parallelism, Semitic step parallelism. And you scratch your head and you think, well, what in the world is parallelism? Well, let me explain what parallelism is. Parallelism is used throughout the Old and the New Testament. And it's used to provide further clarification. So if you have a parallel statement, you have the first statement is made and then a parallel statement is made to follow up. And that statement can either contrast two opposing ideas. It could emphasize an issue. It could show action. It could show the result of something. And again, like triads, it's a literary device and they're easily memorable. Okay, they're easily memorable. And so what we have in this step parallelism in verses 7 and 8 is two structures, the f- verse 7 and then verse 8. And what is stated in verse 8 basically parallels everything that's said in verse 7. Again, why? To emphasize to us the necessity to be persistent in prayer. So let's look at the structure. We're going to have three lines in verse 7. Line A, line B, line C. In verse 8, we're going to have three lines. Line A, line B, line C. So in verse 7, we have line A. Ask, and it will be given to you. Now look at the parallel statement in verse 8. Let, let Line A. Everyone who asks receives. Line B in verse 7. Seek, and you will find. Line B in verse 8. He who seeks finds. Line C in verse 7. Knock, and it will be open to you. The parallel line in verse 8, line C. To him who knocks, it will be opened. Again, it's very easy for us to remember, ask, seek, and knock. It's very easy to uh, see that triad. It's also, we see this parallel structure. Well, we know that if we ask, it will be given because he confirms. If you ask, you will receive. We know if we seek, we will find because he says, he who seeks finds. We know that if we knock, it will be opened because he says to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now, these three verbs, ask, seek, and knock, are all present imperative verbs. That they're, impar- that they're in the imperative mood denotes for us that they are commands. These aren't suggestions. It's not ask if you want to. It's not seek if you want to. It's not knock if you want to. Rather, you must ask. You must seek. You must knock. The present tense, as well, implies that these commands are persistent, ongoing actions. In other words, you must keep asking, you must keep seeking, you must keep knocking. Now, what do these three verbs specifically mean? Ask, ateo. It's to request something of someone. The verb ask implies humbly going to another person with a request for help. You're admitting you have a need. Seek, zateo, is to earnestly strive for something you need, you want, or desire. And the word knock, cruo, means to pound on a door repeatedly until it is answered. Now these three verbs are deliberately chosen. 
And they're placed in a particular order to provide a sense of growing urgency. You asked, then you sought, then you knocked. And as well, their order demonstrates perseverance on the one doing it, on the one praying. Let me give you an example. If a parent is near, the child will ask. If the parent is not in the room, they will go and seek the parent. And if they find out that the parent is in their room with the door closed, they're going to keep knocking until the parent answers the door. In the same way that a child persists in obtaining an answer from their parent, we as believers are to persist in prayer to our Heavenly Father. Now, it's necessary to hear to add a note of clarification. Asking, seeking, and knocking is no simple formula for getting answers from God. Okay? Well, I asked, I saw it, I knocked, boom, I should get my answer. No, it's not a simple formula. See, persisting in prayer presumes four things. There's four things that are presumed in persistent prayer. Number one, a penitent heart. Number two, conformity to God's will. Three, Belief in God's ability to answer. And four, proper motivation. I'm going to explain those in a moment, but let me say this. You can ask, seek, and knock all you want. But your persistent prayer will mean nothing if you don't have a penitent heart, conformity to God's will, believe in God's ability to answer, and a proper motivation. So persistent prayer, first, presumes a penitent heart. Psalm 68, verse 18 and 19 says, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Certainly God has heard and he has given heed to the voice of my prayer. See, unconfessed sin is unforgiven sin. And unforgiven sin results in what? Unanswered prayers. No one, not any one of us, can approach a holy God with unconfessed sin in our life. However, as the Apostle John declares in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So persistent prayer presumes a penitent heart. Believer, I ask you, do you have a penitent heart before you pray? Believers, we must confess our sins before beginning to persist in prayer. Second, Persistent prayer presumes conformity to God's will. Persistent prayer presumes conformity to God's will. Again, the Apostle John says in 1 John 5, 14 to 15, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Now God's will is revealed in his word and attained in obedience to his law. One of the first things we should be asking God for is the ability to do his will. Matthew 6.10 Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' prayer in the garden before his pending crucifixion aptly demonstrates this point. 
In Matthew 6 or 26, 38, what did he pray? My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not I as I will, but as you will. Not my will, but your will. See, persistent prayer presumes conformity to God's will. Believer, I ask you, are you conforming to God's will? We must conform our lives to God's will if our prayer, or if our persistent prayers are to be answered. Third, persistent prayer presumes belief in God's ability to answer. Again, it presumes belief in God's ability to answer. Jesus declares in Matthew 21, 22, In all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. James confirms it in chapter 1 and verse 6 of his epistle. He must ask in faith without any doubting. Now the verb believing, pistuo, and the term faith, pistis, in those two verses, refer to a firm persuasion a firm conviction in someone or something. In other words, we have confidence in God despite our situation, despite our circumstances. Now in James 1.6, when he says, ask in faith without any doubting, the verb doubting denotes uncertainty or a dispute. It's in the middle voice implying that someone's disputing within themselves. Hence the idea of doubting. And what is this doubting? It is questioning God's character. It's questioning God's character. It's questioning whether God can do what He has promised. And what has God promised to do? He's promised to supply all our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19 And so persistent prayer presumes belief in God's ability to answer. And I ask you, believer, do you believe? That he can answer your prayer. You must pray to God. But you must be convinced that he will answer. Any doubting will, will result in no answer. Fourth. Persistent prayer presumes proper motivation. Persistent prayer presumes proper motivation. James 4.3 says, You ask and do not receive. You get no answer. Because you ask with the wrong motives so that you can spend it on your pleasures. Now the word wrong motives here, kakos, it's an adverb of manner. It implies how one prays. And the word means to pray evilly. You're praying for your desires evilly. Now how does somebody pray evilly? Well, if we use James 1.6 as our base text, First, to pray evilly is to not ask in faith. See, if we pray in faith, we're praying in confidence that God is going to answer despite our situation or circumstances. And second, praying evilly means to uh, pray with doubting. That verb doubting is to pray with uncertainty. It's to question whether God can do what He has promised. So... If you pray evilly, that is, you didn't pray believing, you didn't pray expecting an answer, you, you prayed but questioned whether God can really do what he says he's going to do, you're praying evilly. Furthermore, here's what's motivating them. They want to fulfill their pleasures. Again, notice what James says. He says that... Uh, 
You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So why? You can spend it on your pleasures. That term pleasures translates the Greek term hedone, from which we get our English word hedonism. What is hedonism? Hedonism, according to the Oxford Dictionary, is the proper end of all moral action is pleasure. In other words, everything you do in life is all about your pleasure. If it feels good, what? Do it. That's hedonism. By the way, that is not what God says. Okay? God doesn't care if it feels good. If it's evil, it's evil. If it's wrong, it's wrong. Okay? But society tells us, well, if it feels good, it must be right. If it feels good, do it. That's hedonism. The Jewish philosophical work of 4th Maccabees, written between 100 B.C. and A.D. 30 is more than likely the understanding of the New Testament word pleasure here. I want to read something it says. It says, in pleasure, there in hedonism, there exists a malevolent tendency, which is the most complex of all the emotions. In the soul, it is boastfulness, covetousness, a thirst for honor, rivalry, and malice in the soul, indiscriminate eating, gluttony, and solitary gourmandizing. Now, that gives us a great understanding of how the New Testament writers understood the word hedonism. Boastful, covetous, thirsting for honor, rivalry, malice, uh, indiscriminate eating, gluttony, and gourmandizing. Now, we can summarize it this way. It is a gratification of sinful, illicit, lustful desires. In Luke chapter 8 and verse 14, you'll remember that the seed that fell on the thorny ground was choked because of what? The worries, the riches, and the pleasures of this world. Titus 3.3, we were once foolish ourselves, we were once disobedient, we were once deceived, we were once enslaved to what? Lust and pleasures, hedonism. 2 Peter 2.13, they count it a pleasure. They count hedonism, something to revel in the daytime. The point is this, my friends, as believers, as kingdom citizens, we must never pray for the gratification of our sinful, lustful, illicit desires. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now let me say this, that if you delight, if you find pleasure in the Lord, then we can know for certain that your pleasures are going to align with His will. Furthermore, God promises to give good things to those who walk uprightly or do His will. Psalm 84.11 says, No good thing does He withhold from those who walk righteously or uprightly. And so persistent prayer presumes proper motivation. Believer, what are you motivated by? What is the reason why you're praying? We've got to pray with proper motivation. And we must never pray just simply to fulfill our evil desires. You see, my friends, when we persist in prayer, when we ask, seek, and knock, and we pray according to God's will, we pray believing in God's ability to answer. We're praying not for sin for selfish reasons, then we can have confidence that God will answer our prayers. Again, Jesus says in verse 7, it will be given, you will find, and it will be open to you. He repeats that same promise in verse 8. Everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. 
And again, he repeats this. The purpose of his repeating the statement in verse 8 is to insist that persistent prayer works. Persistent prayer works. Now, folks, it is crucial at this juncture to explain a unique grammatical construction of these promises in verse 7. Notice the verbs, it will be given and it will be opened. It will be given, ditto me, and it will be opened, anoigo. Those two words, those two promises, those two verbs are future passive. Future passive. What's that mean? Well, the future tense doesn't necessarily mean it will happen tomorrow or the next day. The future tense is used to guarantee that the answer will be given. Okay? There's no doubt the answer will be given. The passive voice implies that it's God who is serving as the agent of answering, okay? So the fact that it's in the passive voice means I'm not not fulfilling it, God's fulfilling it. And that's why we call it, theologically, we call it a divine passive. Now, anytime you have a divine passive in the scripture, it means that instead of giving us what we request... God gives what he deems is best or good. Now, let's retranslate verse 7 in light of the divine passive. Ask, and God will give you what he deems good. Seek and find what God deems good for you. Knock, and God will open for you what he deems good. That takes a totally different approach to verse 7 than we might normally think. Well, Lord, I prayed for a brand new car, and you didn't give me one. Well, obviously, God didn't think that brand new car was best for you. You thought it was good. God didn't. We'll say more on that in a moment. Now, some have twisted this passage to present a false view of God. Some have actually said that verse 7 gives believers the right to bully God into giving them what they want by asking, seeking, and knocking. Well, that's just absurd. As if we could bully God. Others argue that the commands undermine God's omniscience. Say, if God is all-knowing, we don't need to pray, they say. Hence, prayer is a waste of time. If God commands us to do it, it's obviously not a waste of time. And the reason believers pray and pray persistently is not that God doesn't know what we need. It's not because God needs to be manipulated or bullied into giving us what we want. God commands us to pray to demonstrate our surrender to him. To to demonstrate our dependency upon him to provide. Yes, God knows what we need before we ask it. But he's waiting for us to recognize our need and humbly come to him with those needs. Now there's others who claim, well, prayer is simply unnecessary. They say, look, there's people that I know who do not pray and they seem to manage life well. They get what they need by working. 
So therefore, they don't, we don't need to pray. I don't see that person praying, so why should I pray? To that I want to say this. Their conclusion has a significant problem. Because they've not distinguished between creative and redemptive gifts. Creative and redemptive gifts. A creative gift or creative gifts are those good things God gives to us as the creator. Irrespective of whether or not we believe in God. Whether or not we pray to him. James 1.17 says, Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. That phrase, every good thing given, refers to anything beneficial to humanity without any thought of compensation. For example, the sun and rain are creative gifts. Earlier in the sermon, Jesus said, God causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, Matthew 5.45. Breath and life are also creative gifts. Acts 17.24 states, He himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So anything good that everyone in general enjoys is a creative gift from God the Creator. Creative gifts are given without prayer. Well, look, I've gotten ahead in life by working. Well, yeah, because guess what? Work is a creative gift. All humanity works, all humanity eats, okay, is the general gist. That's a creative gift. I'll say it again. Everybody in the world is the recipients of creative gifts, whether or not they believe God, whether or not they pray. But redemptive gifts are altogether different. See, redemptive gifts are only given to the redeemed. And the first redemptive gift is the gift of salvation. Joel 2.32, Romans 10.13, declare whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the very first redemptive gift. But how would you get that redemptive gift? Through prayer. You've got to call, you've got to pray. From the moment of salvation, Ephesians 1.3 says, You are now blessed with every spiritual blessing, every spiritual gift, every redemptive gift in heavenly places in Christ. If you do not pray, you will not receive God's redemptive gifts. Think about it this way. Your ability to obey God's will is a redemptive gift. Remember, Matthew 6.10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're praying that you can do God's will, God answers and gives you that ability. Again, uh, forgiveness of sins is a redemptive gift. Matthew 6.12, forgive us our debts. As well, help us to forgive others. So not only is our forgiveness a redemptive gift, but our ability to forgive others is a redemptive gift. Only comes through prayer. Deliverance from temptation and Satan is another redemptive gift. Jesus taught in his model prayer, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Matthew 6.13 Redemptive gifts come only in answer to our prayers. You don't receive these redemptive gifts unless you pray. So you see, my friends, people can appear to be managing life, but if they're not praying, it's all a smokescreen. You can manage for a while in this life without prayer, but without redemptive gifts that come only through prayer, the only thing they're going to manage in the long run is themselves a place in the lake of fire. 
If you're truly a kingdom citizen, then you're going to persist in prayer. Now ask yourself, do you persist in prayer? You say, well, no, I haven't done it, but now that I see that I should, I will. Well, that's because the Holy Spirit's working in your life. You say, well, I'm still not interested. Well, then you need to wonder where's the Holy Spirit in your life? Kingdom citizens persist in prayer. They obey the commands of persistent prayer. Kingdom citizens will ask, will seek, will knock. And they will receive those redemptive gifts for which they have prayed. Now having set forth the commands of persistent prayer, Jesus now sets forth the cornerstone of persistent prayer in Matthew 7, 9 to 11. Matthew 7, 9 to 11, the cornerstone of persistent prayer. He says, Or what man is there among you, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Again, we're talking about the cornerstone of persistent faith. You know the commands? Here's the cornerstone. Here's why you can persist in faith. Your Father who is in heaven. That's the cornerstone. Now to demonstrate the veracity of that statement, Jesus provides a parable about children and parents. Now this parable is based upon Isaiah 49 verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. In that passage, God compared his compassion for his people to a mother's care for her children. Now Jesus begins this parable with a question. What man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give, or he will not give him a snake, will he? In the Sermon in the Plain, over in Luke chapter 11, we have a similar illustration which makes the same point. Jesus says there in Luke 11, 11 to 12, Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish, he will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he's not going to give him a scorpion, will he? Now in the Matthew 7 illustration, a son asks his father for a loaf of bread and fish. Culturally, bread and fish were the primary food staple amongst the Jewish people. In other words, the son was simply asking for what? His daily provision. No rational father would give his son a stone or a snake. A stone is inedible and a snake is poisonous. More than likely, his comparison between a stone and bread refers back or alludes back to his situation with Satan in Matthew 4. The tempter came and said, If you're the son of God, command these stones become bread. And I have no doubt that when Jesus utters this statement in the sermon, this illustration, he's anticipating the feeding of the 5,000 and later the 4,000 in Matthew 14 and 15. In both of those feeding miracles, bread and fish were multiplied to feed the masses. Now Jesus explains here that parents being evil know how to give good gifts to their children. The word evil here, planeros, means morally wrong. It refers to the sin nature that's inherent in every person. All have sinned. Romans 3.23 Every person is born with a sinful nature. They inherit it from Adam. Romans 5.12 and 19 As one man sinned under the world and death through sin, so death passed on all, for all sinned. Through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. But I want you to see something here in Jesus' statement. 
Just because you have a sin nature, just because you're evil, does not make you incapable of doing good. What does Jesus say here? Even sinful parents know how to give good gifts to their children. And he follows this up with, a, with what's called a kawahamer. That's an, it's a Hebrew or a rabbinical argument that argues from the lesser to the greater. Common rabbinic saying. You know, how do you know if, they, if you have one of those? I don't expect you to remember that it's a kawahamer. What I want you to know is this. Anytime you see in the, in the Gospels the phrase uttered by Christ, how much more, he's invoking one of these kawahamer arguments. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's arguing to make a point. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? Okay, so here's the argument. If sinful human parents, the lesser, know how to provide good things to their children, then we can certainly trust our sinless Heavenly Father, the greater, to provide good things to us. He will give us what is good. He will meet our needs and his giving will be generous and abundant. Again, remember James 1.17, every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. That phrase, Father of lights, acknowledges that God is the creator of all things, including the light, the sun and the moon. John, 1 John 1, 5, God is light, in Him is no darkness of all. So when we pray to the Father of lights, we're praying to the Father who is what? Good. A Father in whom no darkness dwells. God's character of goodness, His divine power and care is written into creation. Psalm 19, 1, the heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the works of His hands. Every time the sun rises and sets, every time the moon rises and sets, it reminds us of God's goodness. It reminds us that God gives good gifts. I wonder, I wonder my friends, how often do you pause and look at the sunrise? Well, I'm not out of bed yet, you say, okay. Well, how often do you pause at the sunset? Don't tell me you've gone to bed already. But how often do we pause and look and say, God is good. Every sunrise, every sunset is a reminder to us that our Father is good and that He does good things for us. We have a daily reminder. Now, returning to Matthew 7, 9 to 11. For the 15th time in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus refers to God as our Father, which underscores that intimate relationship between us and Him. We're His children. And unlike evil fathers and mothers, God is good. There's a, I want to read you something by Stuart Weber here. I think it's very important to, to note. He says this. In today's environment of parental abuse, transient relationships, and growing isolationism, this portion of Scripture provides comfort for the deep, deepest needs of many adults who are inwardly abandoned children. We live in a world where many never experience the goodness or the love or the care of a father or a mother or sometimes both. But thanks be to God that we have a heavenly father who is good and who does love and who does care for his children. And may those who have never known a good father or good mother find love and care in their heavenly father. Friends, because we are God's children, because He is our Father, we can bring our petitions to Him and He will answer. He's not going to deceive us. He's not going to pull a bait and switch. He's a good Father, which means He's the cornerstone of persistent prayer. 
Because He is good, we can persist in prayer. He never tires of hearing us cry out to Him, Abba, Father. But that doesn't mean He's going to spoil us either. I want to deal with a final complaint against prayer. Prayer is ineffective. Prayer is ineffective, some say. Now, they argue that they prayed for God to do something and God didn't deliver. Well, to that I say this. Read the text. Persistent prayer and answers to prayer are conditioned on two things. One, God only answers His children. That's the point of the illustration. If an earthly parent does good for their children, how much more will your heavenly father do for his children? God isn't in the business of answering the prayers of the unregenerate, of the unrepentant. Second condition, God only gives good things to his children. See, God's children are those who walk uprightly, as we saw in Psalm 84.11. But we, what we have to wrestle with is, sometimes what we prayed for that we thought was good, God didn't give us that because it really wasn't good for us. For example, you've got a test to take. So you prayed, Lord, help me to pass the test. But then you failed. Now, you believed that passing would be good. Isn't passing a test a good thing? Yes, it is. But you didn't study for the test. You wanted God to bail you out. God's not in the bailout business. He says, no, it's going to be far better for you to fail... Because you need to learn that prayer is not a shortcut to hard work. Folks, sometimes when we pray, we don't get our desired answer. doesn't mean that God didn't answer, and it doesn't mean that God isn't good. Yes, disappointments are brutal. But let's take a moment to reflect that our Heavenly Father knows what's best for us. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, I thank God that he is not prepared to do anything that I may chance to ask him. I am profoundly grateful to God that he did not grant me certain things for which I asked and that he shut certain doors in my face. Now, I can say to that, amen. And every one of us should say amen to that as well. Because there have been times that we have prayed for things and we thought in the midst of praying, man, this is a good thing. And then when we look back with 2020 vision later on, we're like, man, thank you God for not answering that in the affirmative. Sometimes God answers no and withholds what we think is good or what we've requested because it's not what's good for us. So the next time God says no, take a moment and consider that his no is still good. Matthew 7, 7 to 11 is not a blank check to name and claim anything we want in this life. This passage is about persisting in prayer. So that we can live the kingdom citizen life. Persisting prayer, asking, seeking, knocking, presumes a penitent heart. It presumes conformity to God's will. It presumes belief in God's ability to answer. And it presumes proper motivation. And so my friends, if we will persist in prayer. If we'll meet these four conditions. If we have confidence that God will hear and answer them. God is a good father. He desires to give us as His children good things, especially when we ask. Let's pray. Father, we come to You as Your children, Your children who You've adopted into Your family, 
through the sacrificial death of your son, Jesus Christ. We praise and thank you that you're a good, loving, caring father. And as your children, we acknowledge that we are completely dependent upon you. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for not praying. Forgive us for not believing you will answer. Forgive us for not persisting in prayer. Father, I ask that you would help us to have that childlike faith that will simply ask, seek, and knock until you give the answer. And Father, when you do, help us to be content with the answer you give. Keep us from disappointment. Keep us from doubt. But Father, we say thank you for loving us and thank you for always giving us what is good. Amen.